you have a Bible, you can uh, open up to Matthew 21. Last week uh, in the passage, we looked at uh, what's called the triumphal entry, uh, Jesus making his way to Jerusalem, and uh, in some ways, maybe calling it the triumphal entry is, is a bit of a misnomer because it, it, in some ways it wasn't all that triumphal. Uh, Jesus comes into Jerusalem uh, riding on a donkey, right, riding on a, a humble beast, not, not a big white fancy horse, and uh, he wasn't greeted by government officials, but uh, by the common people. Um, and in other ways, it was very triumphal because Jesus came in humility and he wasn't greeted by the government officials and he was cheered on by uh, the common people. In today's passage, uh, we're going to see Jesus uh, as he's in Jerusalem now. And he's likely, uh, sometimes in the Bible, we don't really get the chronology of things so much because the authors don't always tell us, okay, this happened at this time, and then this happened at this time, and so we just kind of see events, you know, boom, 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 and so Jesus uh, had his triumphal entry in Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden, uh, the next passage is Jesus cleansing the temple, and then this is likely something that happened the next day. He probably didn't just, you know, ride the donkey straight up to the temple and, uh, and you know, go in and take care of business, probably. Uh, he probably got some rest before this happened uh, in the next day, and there are uh, actually two different uh, uh, accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple. There's the accounts in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then there's an account in John. And John puts his account of Jesus cleansing the temple early, it's kind of at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And the Synoptic Gospels put the account of Jesus cleansing the temple towards the end of his ministry. And, you know, commentators are kind of, they debate on whether this is one account or two accounts, um, you know, at different times probably likely that this is two different instances of Jesus cleansing the temple. Uh, if you want to read John's account, you can go to John's gospel uh, when you have some time. Uh, there are definitely some differences in the accounts, and so we're looking probably uh, at two different accounts of cleansing uh, the temple. Uh, one commentator had this to say, John's gospel records a similar cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in John chapter 2. Interpreters have proposed two explanations. One, that there's only one cleansing, but John narrated the action at the beginning uh, for thematic theological purposes, while the Synoptic Gospels narrate the actual historical chronology. The second option is that there were indeed two similar but distinctly different temple cleansings. The differences of detail seem to indicate that there were two. For while the initial action is similar, Jesus' statement uh, in Matthew and the challenge from the Jewish leaders are entirely different from what John records. In addition, John places the event so early in the gospel that it would be difficult to think that he wanted readers to take it as anything but an event that happened early in Jesus' ministry. Thus, Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning as a warning of his, at the beginning of his ministry as a warning, and at the end of his ministry as a statement of judgment on the leadership of Israel. And so we all, um, at times in our lives, matter of fact, I, I read a, a quote on Twitter the other day where somebody says, we tend to relate to the flipping tables, Jesus, more so than the eating at a table with your enemies, Jesus, right? And, and, and it seems like as Christians, anytime we get you know, angry about something that's going on in the world or in the church, we kind of point to this passage and say, well, Jesus flipped the tables in the temple, and, and, it, and it brings justification you know, to our anger at, at things in the church. Uh, and in the world, but we have to be reminded that Jesus also shared meals at tables with his enemies and didn't flip those tables over, right? 
Um, and so think about that. And, and I want to just call our attention uh, to John chapter 2 before we get into our passage today. So Jesus uh, did uh, have this thing in the temple in John chapter 2. Uh, and I, I do want to read the passage. It says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with sheep and oxen, and he poured the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my house, my father's house, a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture in the word that Jesus had spoken. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, we see, you know, contention between him and the religious leaders of his day. You would think if anybody were to embrace Jesus, the Messiah, that it would be the religious leaders of his day, but, but there was much contention between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And Jesus, in fact, had some of his harshest words to say to the most religious people, right? The people that were going through the motions, the people who were trying to work harder, to try harder to be better. Those were the people that Jesus had some of the harshest words to say. And in this scene in John where Jesus cleansed the temple, it was noted that zeal for the house of God would consume Christ. And that was Jesus' motivation. Jesus, we know he was sinless. He lived a perfect life. And so the flipping tables, Jesus flipped tables out of his perfection, not out of his anger necessarily. You you and I can be angry, but our anger isn't perfect. Jesus' anger is perfect, right? Our anger is far from perfect. Uh, Matter of fact, I don't know if our anger is ever perfect, right? Uh, Jesus' anger is never sinful, and it was out of zeal for God's house, such a zeal that consumed him, right? The Bible tells us that Christ gave his life for the church in Ephesians 5, right? We're told that he died for the church because the zeal for the house of God and the people of God so consumed him. And so, as we get into our passage today, we'll see some differences in in Matthew's account than John's account. So, starting in Matthew 21, verse 12, says that Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And so, again, we see this kind of picture of flipping tables Jesus, and it might be helpful to understand a little bit about the temple and how the temple complex was laid out, and I'm going to give you just a really oversimplified kind of version, uh, picture of what the temple was. The temple was, was very, uh, there was lots going on in the temple, and it was kind of this massive uh, complex, but we had kind of different, three different sections, if you will. You had kind of the outer courts of the temple, which was called the Court of the Gentiles, and this was the place where Gentile, the only place that Gentiles could be. They couldn't go any farther into the complex than this outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And if you were a Jew and you have not been ritually cleansed, you couldn't go past this part either. So there was kind of this segregating effect. And then there was the partition wall. 
And one commentator said this, the Jews in Jerusalem were so zealous in keeping the purity of the majority of the temple area that they placed stones along the wall which threatened death to any Gentile who would dare go past it. Could you imagine walking in here on a Sunday morning and there was a wall right here down the middle and it said if you met certain criteria that if you went past this wall that you might die? Welcome to Sunday morning, right? <laughs> this, is, this was the temple. This was their normal practice. This was the acceptable practice. And then beyond this wall, there was the inner court that only purified Israelites could enter. So you had to go through all of the, the Old Testament cleansing rituals to go past this wall that threatened death if you went past it. And then there was the, the inner, inner part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, and, and only priests could go into this Holy of Holies. And so the temple was segregated, right? We, we, we can't really fathom that because our churches aren't segregated uh, in these ways, but this was the temple of Jesus' day. And when Jesus entered the temple, he, he was in this outer court area. He was in this court of the Gentiles. And people would travel from all over, all over the region, uh, to come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And for the Jew of Jesus' day, worship involved animal sacrifices, right, per God's Old Testament prescriptions. And so they would travel, and so they would have kind of this business happening inside of the temple where you could buy animals in order to worship God with your sacrifices so you wouldn't have to travel great distances with your animals, right? Kind of on a practical level, that makes sense. And so this was the business that was going on, and there was money changing. There was only certain kinds of money that you could offer in worship at the temple. Uh, you know, there were different you know, denominations of money in, in Jesus' day, and so only certain kinds were allowed uh, at the temple. And so there were money changers uh, exchanging money uh, at current rates. And if you think about, again, this is hard for us to relate to because this is so not you know, our culture uh, today. But, but if you think about, you know, coming into church to worship, coming into, for them, the synagogue to worship, to the temple to worship God, and there's all this business happening. And again, maybe on a practical level for some, you know, reasonable, uh, reasonableness that these things are happening, but at the end of the day, the temple was a place to worship God, right? The temple uh, was a big part of Jewish culture and Jewish history. You might remember in the Old Testament when the Jews were wandering through the desert, they had the tabernacle, which was basically the portable temple, right? When they, as they would travel, they would erect this tabernacle so that they had a place to worship. And it was generally understood by the Old Testament Israelite that, that God dwelt in the temple, right? That the presence of God was in the temple or in the tabernacle. And, and so they had this history of, of the tabernacle, and then eventually they could build a permanent temple, what a glorious day in the history of the Jewish nation, the Jewish culture. And then we fast forward to this moment when Jesus, immediately preceding his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as he's just days away from the cross, and he goes to the temple and these things are happening, these things that are far from the worship of God, these things that are far from an understanding that the presence of God would be in the temple. And so we see Jesus in a moment of perfect, sinless, righteous anger, flipping tables and driving out people in the temple who were not worshiping God, people who were in the temple solely 
to do business. Mark gives us his account in Mark chapter 11 of this moment. And it says that they came to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying that, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So Mark, Mark adds a little bit of detail that, that Jesus wasn't just a madman driving people out and flipping tables, but he was teaching the people. Right? Jesus never missed a teaching moment, it would seem, in his ministry. And so even in his righteous, sinless, perfect anger at what was happening in the house of God, he capitalized on a teaching moment. And interestingly enough, in this teaching moment, the religious leaders, they were mad and they were, they were plotting to kill him while the people were eating up every word that he said. I find that pretty fascinating. Because again, you would think if anybody would be interested in the words of the Christ, of the Messiah, that it would be the religious people. But they were, they were angry and, and they were sinful in their anger and they were unrighteous in their anger and they were not perfect, far from perfect in their anger as they plotted to destroy him. And part of what made them mad was that people were paying attention to what Jesus had to say. Part of what made them mad is that the people were hanging on his every word. It says that the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then Jesus in both Matthew's account and Mark's account says it is written that my house shall be called the house of prayer. And this is a reference to Isaiah 56 verses 6 and 7 and it says this, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my, in my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The temple of Jesus' day was not necessarily a house of prayer for all peoples because of how it was segregated. And I would have to think that this is first and foremost what angered Jesus. Again, perfectly angered Jesus. That, that it wasn't a house of prayer for all peoples. Isaiah makes mention of those who don't profane the Sabbath and they hold fast to the covenant, and that God will accept their burnt offerings and their sacrifices. What was happening in the temple of Jesus' day was a, a profaning of the Sabbath. What was happening in Jesus' day were sacrifices and burnt offerings that were empty religion, that, that didn't mean anything to anyone. People just going through religious motions. And while we have a hard time maybe relating to the culture and the things happening in Jesus' day, I think we can relate to this idea today that oftentimes people, their approach to church is not much more sometimes an empty religion, right? We think that, that we please God by showing up and we, we please God by checking off the box that I attended church on Sunday. 
and certainly our, our attendance here and our fellowship with one another, that, that, that's no doubt pleasing to God. But God wants more than that. He wants more than just checking off a box saying, I did this. Right? We, we read our Bibles you know, week in and week out, and we, we check it off the list saying, I, I did my devotion you know, for the day or for the week or whatever. Um, certainly those things please God, but again, God wants more than that from us. These kind of empty motions were happening in the temple of Jesus' day, and I have to think that it was part of what caused His righteous anger. People going through the motions, offering empty, meaningless religion in the hopes that it would gain them something, right? So that part's not all that different. And then Jesus also mentions that they have made his house a den of robbers. And this is a reference to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 11 to 20. Listen to this. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to this house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave, you, uh, gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen and the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or a prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon on the trees of the field and the fruits of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. How does that make you feel? These are some harsh words. God's speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, and evidently this kind of thing was happening back in Jeremiah's day as well. So nothing new, right? We, we get a little bit of an inclination of just the human heart as we see this trajectory throughout history of the profaning of God's name and the profaning of God's house and the profaning of God's people. And God here has some pretty harsh things to say, even so much so say, don't pray for this people. Can you imagine God saying, don't pray for somebody? He says, don't pray for this people or lift up a cry. Do not intercede for I will not hear you. These are harsh words. But this gives us an inclination of how seriously God takes as far as what happens by His people in His house, right? Our, our churches today are, are nothing like, you know, the temples of old. And even in our, our kind of evangelical Christian tradition, we, we don't typically have big, ornate buildings like other traditions might have. But that doesn't mean that God takes any less seriously what happens when His people gather in his house. And he tells that these, that these people 
they've not only provoked God, but they have provoked shame in and of themselves for their empty religion. And so maybe if all of this is true, this gives us a little more of a sense of the flipping tables Jesus, right? When he walked into the temple to see that this was happening. And we get a, a glimpse of maybe why he was angry. And again, in perfection and in sinlessness and in righteousness, he was angered over profane, empty, hollow, meaningless religion happening under the guise of something that was meaningful. And so God takes seriously when, when his people gather. I think sometimes just in the West, that, that, that gets lost on us sometimes. Right? Again, in our tradition, you know, we, we, nobody's wearing a tie here today, right? We, our tradition is not such that you know, we put on our Sunday best. Not that there's anything wrong with that, just not the way that we roll here. Um, and sometimes these things can get lost, I think, on us, how serious God takes the worship of his name and what we do and how we do it and how we go about it. And so Jesus comes into the temple and he's angered at this. And in the midst of this, in verse 14, it says that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now, I'm thinking if I'm in the temple seeing Jesus doing what he's doing, I'm not going near him. (laughs) I'm not going to approach that. But somehow, the blind and the lame, kind of the destitute people in society, approached him. And we're not given any detail as to why or how, but this kind of blows me away. That Jesus in his righteous, perfect, sinless anger, that the destitute people, the people on the fringe of society, the outcasts of society felt like they could approach him. And not only could they approach him, but he healed them. He served them. Think about you in that moment. If you're in that moment and you're angry, like you might need some time to yourself to cool down, right? to get in a better headspace. But Jesus, these people came to Jesus and he healed them. Right? He didn't say, you know, don't, don't bother me, come see me tomorrow. He healed them. And then in verse 15, the chief priests, some of our favorite people, the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, and they were overjoyed. No, they were indignant. They were angry. They were upset that Jesus healed the blind and the lame. The religious people of Jesus' day. And also, we're introduced to these children. We don't know who they are, but children that were crying out in the temple, Hosanna. Remember Jesus' triumphal entry last week? One of the things that they cried to Him was Hosanna. And that it, it's a plea of salvation, this word Hosanna. It's a plea for salvation. And children are crying out Hosanna. They're crying out, Lord, save Children, maybe little children, that, that probably don't even know what they're saying are crying out, Hosanna. And the religious people look at that and they don't, they don't marvel at it. They're angry and they're upset and they're mad that Jesus healed the blind and that He healed the lame. The religious people of, again, part, part of Jesus' anger at probably what was going on in the temple is the religious people of his day just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. And you have to remember that 
that Israel had this history of oppression. They had this history of waiting for the Messiah, right? It was part of their prophetic history saying that one day the Messiah is going to come and He's going to deliver us. And the Messiah comes and they, they don't give Him the time of day, right? They, they miss who the Messiah is and it's proven to us in their indignance at Jesus doing things that only the Messiah could do, right? Nobody in Jesus' day was healing blind people or lame people. I mean, nobody can do that today. Only the Messiah can do this, and rather than embracing the Messiah for who He is, they're angry that He's disrupting their system. They're angry that they probably lost out on some prophets this day because of what Jesus did. They're angry that Jesus had the ear of the people, the common people. Part of their prophets were derived from the common people, and Jesus wrecked that for them. And now these little children are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. The Son of David, I mean, that, that's a title of the Messiah. Linking Jesus to, to the greatest king in Israel's history, King David. That, that's a recognition from children that Jesus is the Messiah. So these little children were able to see something and know something that the religious people weren't able to see and they weren't able to know. when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And so this gives us the inclination that these are probably little children, probably not teenagers probably little children, that somehow the praise of God is coming out of their mouth. And maybe this is a miracle in the moment that Jesus performed in order to make his point with the religious leaders. The religious leaders are saying, do you know what they're saying? And Jesus is like, yeah. Yeah, I know what they're saying. Luke, in his account of this moment, gives us some more detail that says that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And this, this tells us that one way or another that, that Jesus is going to receive the praise that's due Him, whether we give it to Him or not. Right? He, he's worthy of the praise. And if it comes to the point in the history of humanity that all of humanity is silent in the praise of God, that the rocks will cry out. The rocks will praise God if humanity doesn't do it. This is an incredible statement by Jesus in an incredible moment. Because what was happening in the temple was far from the praise of Jesus. Far from the honoring of His name and, and who He is. Far from the recognition of the Messiah who is in their presence. Far from it. And Jesus says, if you don't do it, the rocks will. <laughs> the rocks will. The rocks, un unlike human beings, are not sentient, right? They're, they're not, they don't know what's going on. But all of creation worships Jesus. And if humans don't do it, the rest of creation then will. 
And then we're told that after this happened that he left them and he went to the city of Bethany and lodged there. And so this brief moment where we see Jesus cleansing the temple and Jesus righteously and sinlessly angered at the profaning of his name and of his house. But I want to close with the Apostle Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. He says this, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, for He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. The Apostle Paul likely could be referencing this idea of the segregation of the temple here. And he's telling us that this dividing wall of hostility where Gentiles couldn't go past for fear of death, that Christ in His flesh has broken down this wall. He's telling us that He's abolished the law of commandments expressed in these silly ordinances so that He would create in Himself one new man or one new people in place of the two. Right? The Jews of Jesus' day segregated. You, you were Jew or you were Gentile. Christ has broken down that wall of hostility and, and we all are the people of God. It says that He came and He preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the name of the Lord. In Him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, it was generally understood for the Jews of Jesus' day that God dwelt in the temple. But the Apostle John in the opening lines of his gospel tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us, indicating that the dwelling place of God is no longer in a structure or in a building or up on a hill, but the dwelling place of God is within His people. And if that's true, it would be silly for us to segregate God's people. It would be silly for us to have a, a dividing wall that says, you're over here and you're over here. This had to play into Jesus' anger in what was happening in the temple. He, he's on a mission to draw those who are both near and those who are far off and really, like we're all far off. If you think you're near, you're fooling yourself, right? But he's, he's there to draw those who think they're near and to draw those who are far off to him and to bring peace by the blood of his cross. And he's building for himself a people of whom he is the chief cornerstone, that he's the foundation. 
We're being built together collectively as a people into the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Can, can you understand why Jesus was angry about what was happening in the temple in his day, if this is true? He's trying to tear down walls while the religious people of his day are building them. And ultimately, Jesus tore, like Jesus won, right? He tore down the wall. They were building such walls that they were even angry at the praise of little kids to the Messiah. And I think we would do well to kind of be warned at our propensity as religious people to do things like this. That we would be warned in our propensity as, of religious people is, is the, that we would not get to a place in life where our religion is nothing more than just going through motions. That we would not get to a place in our life where we're just checking things off of the list for the sake of checking things off the list, but that we would remember who Jesus is and what He's done and that He came to call all of us near and far as a people to Him. And that He died for our sins. That He did something that we couldn't do for ourselves. He tore down this wall of hostility that we've worked hard to build as a people. And that's, that's the beauty of flipping tables, Jesus, that He's not flipping tables for the sake of flipping tables. He's not angry for the sake of being angry. He's righteously and sinlessly and perfectly angry because people have not drawn near to Him and they've made a mockery of who He is and what He's done. And today we get the privilege to celebrate communion in light of all of this, to remember what Jesus has done for us, to remember that He has called all to Him both near and far, and that He's made salvation available to all who would believe, and that's only possible because of His shed blood and because of His broken body, His blood cleansing us from sin, His body broken as punishment for sin that you and I rightfully deserve, that He's taken upon himself and in return for that he's given us his righteousness and everything good about him that's a beautiful truth and i hope as we celebrate communion as we do at the end of every month that that truth would not be lost on us that this is a visual representation of the body and the blood of christ a visual representation of christ for us and what he's done that we could never do and so as we close our service um Austin's going to come up and he's just going to strum a little bit on the guitar and you can come up and grab the elements of communion and go back to your seat and take them on your own and ponder what Christ has done for you and how thankful you are for what he's done that you could never do. And to remember as we go out there um, that there's a lot of people that need to know what Christ has done for them that they can never do for themselves and we carry that message out these doors. So let me pray for us and then we'll take communion and sing a couple of songs. Father, we're grateful this morning. Um, grateful first and foremost that you, uh, that you love us, that you put up with us in our sinfulness, that you contend with us in our imperfection, that you're patient with us in our unrighteousness. But more than those things, God, we're grateful that you have made a way to deal with those things, that you've made a way um, to where we could benefit from your perfection and your sinlessness and your righteousness by trusting in you. And so I pray that you uh, would give us today perhaps a greater understanding than when we came to the door of, of these gospel truths. 
and as we uh, engage in communion, as we engage uh, ongoing in fellowship week after week, that you would help us uh, just to have greater and greater reverence for who you are and what you've done, that you would help us uh, to take more seriously as time goes on uh, our fellowship with one another and how meaningful it is. You would help us to be uh, a people who make much of what you've done for us. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.